At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then, book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to you want to talk to someone but not just anyone alma is there to help you find the right fit visit helloalma.com therapy 30 to schedule a free consultation today that's helloalma.com therapy 30 this episode is brought to you by fx's the veil starring elizabeth moss fx's the veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Side A. From Pineapple Street Studios, it's the 11th. I'm Alexis Moore, one of the producers on this month's show. Hanif Abdurraqib is a poet, essayist, and critic. If you're familiar with his work at all, you know he spends a lot of time thinking about music. When Hanif and our team here at the 11th would meet and talk about a possible collaboration, our conversations always circle back to one year and to one album. The year? 1996. The album, The Score, by Fuji's. The Score is the single best-selling album by a hip-hop group, and one of the greatest-selling albums of all time. Those are the official numbers. But there's no telling how many kids dubbed it onto cassette, unofficially. Kids like a 12-year-old Hanif, growing up in Columbus, Ohio. What you're about to hear is an album of our own, a concept album. It's composed of eight tracks on two sides, essays, interviews, observations, all meditating on the score and what it meant to Hanif as he was coming of age. So for this month on the 11th, we give you Hanif Abdurraqib with Time Machine, the score. Track one, On Bicycles. In my neighborhood, the bike was a type of passport. The bike was a show of power. The bike was a mode of freedom and a tool for romance. There are endless stories of first cars or teenagers who sped off into the night to defy whatever flimsy curfews were set for them. But there are far fewer stories about the freedom of the first bike, and I am talking the real bike, with gears and tall wheels. The summer of 1996 was the best summer to have a bike. I was 12, on the verge of 13, on the verge of 8th grade, which meant some level of superiority. It felt like the summer where everyone was growing into a sort of funhouse mirror of pre-adulthood. The person they dreamed themselves to be, finally coming to life a bit through a lone, scraggly facial hair, 
or a voice cracking itself into depth. The core of my crew consisted of Josh, Kenny, Mario, and Brandon. Josh lived one house down from me in a pink crib with siding that was immaculately cared for. Kenny lived around the block. Mario and Brandon, two brothers, lived about five houses down in an older, bluer spot. Our plans were often the same. We'd meet somewhere on our bikes and then take to the neighborhood. We'd pass the girls we'd liked, but never hung out with all that much. We'd see the older kids, the ones we wanted to be like one day, out washing their cars, and we'd annoy them for a bit until they shooed us away. That summer of 1996, me and my pals were obsessed with the Olympics. It was the summer of Michael Johnson, the fastest man in the world in his golden Nikes. The summer of American women dominating in gymnastics and soccer. The United States of America. Muhammad Ali lighting the torch with a trembling arm and Kerry Strug landing a final vault on a fragile ankle. It was a summer of Kool-Aid, pitchers and pitchers of it. The sugar propelling us back outside, back on our bikes and into the streets. On those rides, we'd do tricks like ghost riding the bike, getting it up to full momentum, jumping off, and letting it crash. My crew and I knew our families didn't have much money, but we still lived with a type of reckless disregard for ourselves and for our things. One day, my bike's inner tube was damaged, and so there was a gap of time where I was bikeless, and it was hard to be bikeless and roll with a crew on bikes. So, for about a month, I was on my own. Because I was on my own, I spent a lot of time doing what I imagine a lot of other bikeless kids were doing in places like Columbus, Ohio. Dubbing music off the radio. In April, Maxwell's Urban Hang Suite came out. It was one of those rich, syrupy R&B albums that constantly made me feel older than I was. All I knew was that the adults, the older kids, they were all playing it. And so I copied it on a cassette and listened in my headphones and surely dreamed about what I thought love was at the time. Later that summer, Outkast planted a flag for Southern hip hop with AT Alien. And if you had older siblings who got you into college radio, like mine did, you might snag the odd song by Weezer or Beck off the air and onto a cassette. And then, late in summer, I heard for the first time what would become a seminal album in the history of hip-hop. The score, by a New Jersey trio called Fuji's. We used to be number 10, now we permanently won in the battle. The score is exactly 60 minutes and 52 seconds in its bass form. And so, a standard 60-minute blank tape wouldn't cut it, lest you lose the tail end of the outro, which was absolutely unacceptable. So I had to get a 90-minute blank cassette to do it. This was both a challenge and an opportunity, as a 90-minute cassette left you with unused minutes on the back end. 
I did a trick I would do often. I dubbed my favorite songs from the album on repeat to fill the space. This was easy for the score, because three of my favorite songs were How Many Mics, Ready or Not, and Zealots, all back to back. With my bike out of commission, this customized edition of the score became my walking soundtrack. The third track on the album is one that sends me back to that summer perhaps quicker than any other. The song opens with a sample from Enya. Ready or not. Which, and perhaps this goes without saying, was not a conventional move in the hip-hop of the mid-90s. And the hook, a Delphonics line, turned upside down when taken out of the hands of men. Gonna find you and make you My favorite convenience store, the United Dairy Farmers, was exactly a six-minute walk from my house at a slow and even pace. I knew this because I could listen to Ready or Not about one and a half times before arriving. And I knew when I opened the door to the store, I'd most often be right back in the heart of Lauren Hill's verse. It would become a game. I would try to make it to the front of the store right as Lauren got to I can do what you do, easy. Ready or Not is a take on hide and seek, a children's game, a game built on solitude and searching, searching for small corners to fit yourself into as a means of protection. When I think about the summer of 1996, my 12th summer, and my first in some time without a bicycle to get me around, this is what I think of, solitude, searching. But I also think of the moral panic around hip-hop, of the feeling that I needed to hide my music, that the authorities were literally coming for my dubs, ready or not. I am deeply concerned about the violence, misogyny, hatred of women in the lyrics. I also think of the violence of that year. Rap star Tupac Shakur died last night after a brief life in a rough business. He was 25. Of the genre losing its greats before I even really knew loss. I think of my broken bike, and my time at home, and my learning what solitude was. It was an era of lessons learned. If you can't keep up, then we can't carry you. It was an era of things coming into their own, whether they were ready or not. It's been 25 years since that summer, and I'm still thinking about all the things it and the Fugees, and their album, gave to me. My name is Hanif Abdurraqib, and this is Time Machine, The Score, a consideration of a moment in one of its greatest albums. Track two, on basements. If you live in an old house with more than two floors worn down by the years, it is hard to hide the sound of movement. Each footstep is a conductor for a chorus of creaks and the sighs and moans of floorboards, even under thick carpet. Growing up, if my parents were in their bedroom and preparing to come down the steps, 
I knew it. If I came into the house and ran down the hallway without greeting my mother, she could hear me from miles away. But what I realize now, even if I didn't explicitly know it then, was that the basement was a cavern of secrecy. There is no floor below the lowest floor, and so the alarms of sound tuck themselves away and rest. I'd play DJ and scratch up my dad's old records on the old, barely working turntable. We'd play rap tapes on the stereo at a low enough volume to not flaunt the miracle of sound's failure to make its way upward. The era where my parents exiled rap music from the house was brief, but I remember it because the basement was where my brothers and I would watch rap videos. I remember the first time I saw the Fugees. I was in the basement. It was 1994, two years before the score. They were on Yo! MTV Raps. My older brother and I were up past our bedtimes, and we crowded close to the screen so we could hear their words. The TV turned down low so that it wouldn't alarm anyone upstairs. Today, making rhythms, busting schisms, puffing isms, and all the infinite wisdom of the great one. Sitting on a stage was Lauren, Wyclef, and Praz. All of them decked out in oversized t-shirts, summoning a type of improvisational magic, freestyling in the purest sense. You could tell by the way Lauren's eyes wandered as she was rhyming, as if she were seeking the pull language out of the air while she extended the final syllable on her last word. I can't let them do that now, right, Ed. I'd rather have you hold my head and rub my feet instead. So one, two, uh, You could tell by the way Praz did the old trick of stalling, shouting out the people in the room and the nuances of the physical location while stumbling towards a type of delightful coherence. And yes, you could tell by the way Wyclef, playful and animated, struggled to find his way around the beat. They were young, they were raw, and they were clearly gifted. Lauren and Praz had met in high school in Jersey. They started making music together and Wyclef joined shortly after. And in 1996, they released their landmark album. The score had a singular impact on my life. It was such a moment in time that I found myself wanting to get closer to it, to some of the people who were there at the creation. We're good to go. My check one, two. Jerry Wanda is one of the most legendary producers okay. in hip hop. Some might call him the fourth member of Fuji's. He's Wyclef's cousin, and it was in Jerry's parents' basement that the band took up residence in 1995. They would eat there, sleep there, and, most importantly, record there. This particular basement became so important to New Jersey hip-hop that it had to have a name, like a castle or an estate. That name? The Booga Basement. Booga Basement was the place where any bad kids, any good kids, the drug dealers, you know what I'm saying? Everyone just be there. And once you were in there, it was about being creative. It was about love. They know they were safe because everybody was about the music. The legend goes that Sony gave the Fugees $135,000 to make an album. And they spent a good chunk of it to build themselves a studio, the basement. 
and by all accounts, it wasn't much to behold. The Booga Basement was a small underground space with carpet and dark paneled walls. That basement, if you were too tall, you couldn't get, you couldn't stand up in there. But it wasn't much, but the Booga Basement became the stuff of legend. When you get to the Booga, man, you could see Lauren Hill chilling. Sitting on the floor, just chilling, you know. People would just come for the food. Let me, have you tried Haitian food? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was the right food, and and there was nobody vegan at the time. The chicken was good, yes, everything was good. Everyone was there. Salam Remy, John Forte, Diamond D, The Outsiders, and a young Akon. For me, it's like the Motown, you know what I mean? It was like Tough Gun, you know what I'm saying? You have music, you rap, you sing, you come to the booger. The score has the feeling of an album made by MacGyver, a piece of incredible craftsmanship pulled together from bits and bobs lying around, anything the group could get their hands on. We made everything work, you know? We had to make it work. Whatever we got to do. The Booger Basement was a lab where we create things, where we try things. It works, it works, it doesn't work. No hard feeling. Be like, oh, no, we don't like it next. The environment had a lot to do with it because everybody was free. It was free form. Do whatever you want. There was no worry about well, um, how much how much money we paying for the studio time and trying to create one song and get out and you get kicked out. No, we was 24 hours, man. For example, when we did Killing Me Softly, I remember we recorded that bass on probably like 11 o'clock at night, you know? So we'd be in the studio till like 3, sometimes 6 a.m. We was able to try things, you know? The basement was a place where one could be both brilliant and foolish depending on the hour, minute, or second. It can summon low-stakes experimentation with high-stakes results. The basement is where you might go to feel like you are getting away with something. And if you get away with something enough times, you'll chase the next forbidden thing until everything feels like an unlocked door. At some point, during the making of the score, Sony wanted the Fujis to record in the label studio. They decided to try. They actually say, oh, let's go to the big studio. Let's go to Sony studio, the Michael Jackson. That's where Michael record. We went there and Lauren trying to, we sung, um, we sing the, the hook. It didn't sound good. So we went back to straight up the Booger basement. We went right back. We was like, thank you, big studio. We went right back to the basement and we bought more. We bought all the top engineer to come, you know. Um, we had Basie Bob. He was one of the top mixer and came to the booger basement. We request that he mix it at the booger. Without the, the booger basement, it would still be the Fuji's, but I don't think he would have been a score. I think having that own kind of space to kind of foster your creativity is essential. It takes you back, it transports you, right? It, it's like almost, it can be a spaceship. And I think with the booger basement, with the Fuji's, that was basically their spaceship, alchemical cauldron. Jeff Weiss is a writer and music critic in L.A. He was just a bit older than me when the score debuted. It's just so light, that album. Even though it's, it's, it has a darkness to it, it's not, it's not a soft album, certainly not. But it's light, right? They're floating on air. Gravity is, is, is no match for them at the time. And, you know, you see it in, in, in No Woman, No Cry. You see it in, in Ready or Not. It just floats. And I, I don't know if a rap album had ever floated quite like that at the time. 
you know, it was maybe the first rap album to defy gravity. This image of the Fugees, all on a couch in their basement, underground, freestyling, tinkering with tracks, trying ideas out, trying to tap into something, trying to find flow. And it bumps right up against a memory of me and my two brothers freestyling in our basement. To call this fun was maybe not accurate. It was an exercise in community, but also an exercise in language. I read a lot as a kid. I felt reality and its pull on me fade when I was reading. I got lost in books the way I got lost in lyrics. And this was very much my parents' intention. My mother would shove books into my hands. My father would have me write small book reports on things he'd leave me to read. I realize now that they were teaching me to think, to question, to critique. They knew the doors that might open for me. I read books the way I sampled the radio, recording the words, reading them again and again, trying to understand how sequence and rhythm could build these feelings inside me. Because I wanted to do that too. I thought I could become anything I wanted. My parents taught me that. Nothing was stopping me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Interlude, the ingredients. You like to cook, Hannah? Oh, I love to cook. Okay, right, right. Brass is the onions and the garlic of the Fuji's. You have to have the onions and the garlic. You know, you're frying the oil, you're putting a bit of the chili or whatever. But to those who are really paying attention, they'll be like, how did you fatten out the sauce? Right. And they'll be like, it was brass. 
across is the onions and the garlic. They're definitely a West Indian dish. The fruities are like a rampant to me. To me, it's like samosas. An Asian stir-fry type meal. Maybe it's like a paella. You know, it gives me like styrofoam platter and like, you know, a mixed plate vibes. And then fries with that potato in there. Fries definitely will be the, the potato in this situation. If fries is taking care of the garlic and onions and all that. Wyclef would be the meat. <laughs> and Wyclef would be like the rice. Wyclef would probably be the rice. I would say that Wyclef would be the crushed, you know, because that's like the package of bringing everything together. But then the more you listen, you're like, wait a second. And then Lauren's just like some jumbo shrimp. Lauren is the rum because that's what you get when you come here for. You come here for the rum. Lauren is the spice. She just takes every dish that she has added to to another level. Mm. Lauren would be the chili, and I'm talking like intense chili. When you eat a really spicy stir fry, I think the chili is the first thing you notice. Like her voice is so resonant to me. It's the first thing that clicks. And sometimes it's too much for some people to handle but that's not her problem. If there were a dish, I would say Lawrence the restaurant because she <laughs> she could just do so much. But you, you don't want to just drink straight rum, or at least I don't. Like some oh, people it's so do. true. So you're like, oh, but I need these other juices and fruits and flavors, and that's what smooths it out. <laughs> it's layers on top of layers. It's like you start off with a base. Oh my God, this is so spicy. Then you add a little flavor. Oh my God, no, there's other umami. And you hit it with a little substance. Oh my God, wait but there's sweetness here. It's That's when you get that samosa. Now I'm hungry. Track three, on sampling. My first experience with sampling had nothing to do with drum machines or instrumental tracks. I just knew how to replicate sounds I'd heard with my body. In school, this meant, primarily, beating on lunch tables. Doing it loud enough to gather a small crowd, but not so loud that it might draw the attention of teachers or the watchful eye of the hall monitor set. In my younger years, I didn't think about this as sampling. I'd hear the stuff my older brother played in his car, old school, boom bap, East Coast hip hop, and I felt like I could replicate it. What fascinates me looking back on this is that form of expression acted as the purest type of sampling. Simple replication echoed forward for the sake of another's enjoyment. My oldest brother had some beat tapes that he'd play and we would kick foolish rhymes, but mostly, the beat making had to be replicated by our bodies, by our hands and our arms. You know, I had heard about the Fugees maybe two years prior to the score. You know, the refugees, the Fugees, something like that. This is Havoc, one half of the legendary New York hip hop duo Mob Deep. To all the killers and the hundred dollar billers. Mob Deep had just gone platinum for the first time the same year the score came out. When I first heard it, <laughs> I was impressed. You rockin' loud, but you ain't saying nothing. It's time I the score. Havoc was inspired by the score. The approach the Fugees took to sampling was totally new. It was, to him, on a whole other level. I love to listen to other production, you know, and try to 
reverse engineer it in my brain. Sometimes I feel bad for myself because I can't listen to a record without deconstructing it. I'm always separating the tracks in my head. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? For instance, let's take... They had a song where they sampled I Only Have Eyes For You. My love must be a kind of blind love. Done by... The Flamingos. The Flamingos, right. Zealots, I believe it was. Another MC loses life tonight, Lord. How, how did they sample it, first of all? They threw it in there. They threw a nice bass on there, and then they threw a nice little boom bad beat over it. So I'm deconstructed it in my mind. It's like, okay, I got that part, I got the drums, I got the bass. Secret service keep a close watch as if my name was Kennedy. The song structure, the Flamingo song, I Only Have Eyes For You, is not in such a format that is obvious to rap to. Who in hip-hop was sampling something like that? But... It's a dope song, you hear it, and you go, okay, if they could sample that, now you're not, you know, restricted to just sampling obvious records. You could actually go anywhere now once you see that, you know, those kind of things work. We'll show you how the refugees do. Yeah. Zealots was produced by Jerry Wanda. I'm a vinyl collector. I have close to like 30,000 vinyls. Jerry's use of samples and encyclopedic knowledge of music is in the album's DNA. When I was touring with the Fugees, Germany, China, Japan, wherever I was, and I would buy vinyls and send them to my house. Jerry spoke with me from his home studio, surrounded by crates and crates of vinyl. It's how I imagine Dumas or Tolstoy would have looked if, instead of books, they cared about recorded music. The texture of the score is something special, something built on the backs of more than 40 samples. I love chopping up samples, man. And it brings something very great to a song. Like I was playing, like you go right here, you know? That Sting's 1993 song, Shape of My Heart. This racket came on out. You know what I mean? Nas. In 1998, Nas is The Message, produced by Trackmasters. And then from that record, Lucid Dreams by Juice World, produced in 2018 by Nick Mary. Same record. Or we go, Anya. This sample, I should say, notoriously got the Fugees in a little bit of trouble with Enya's people. Because what happened with the Fugees, nobody thought it was going to be, like, got big. You know, who cares? They put the song out. By the time Radio Nut came out, Enya people was like, what the hell? And Enya's people sued. This is Rough House Records co-founder Chris Schwartz. You know, because it's never good to do this stuff after the fact. Right. <laughs> but uh, I think after it was said and done, we paid out. It was probably well over like 1.2 million went out in getting the samples. For samples? 1.2 million for just for the samples? Yeah. Well, when, you, when you're clearing an Enya song after the fact, <laughs> <laughs> it tend, tends to cost a little bit of money, you know? It, it was a lot of money. I became more connected to the music of my parents through sampling. Some songs that I'd heard them play before showing up in a new way, 
funk, in jazz, in soul, like Roberta Flack, like Headhunters, in Lafayette Afro Rock Band. When I look back on that now, it seems to me like sampling is at its best when it can act as a tool of memory activation, a way to carry me back to the record collections of loved ones by way of confirmation. What did that sample sound like before it was slowed down, sped up, or otherwise dissected for new use? Here's Havoc again. If you listen to the album, it's like a time machine. If you want to know how the 90s sounded, you go listen to the score. It's a beat carried from the back of the bus to your first house party, to your dorm room, to the front seat of your hatchback while you're driving to pick the kid up from school. Sampling is a practice that carries me throughout all modes of life. When I write, I sample. I read Toni Morrison or Virginia Hamilton, and I take notes, and I carry those notes back to the page with me. In this way, sampling is also a somewhat spiritual practice, almost as if the ancestors are using you as a vessel. Track four, on cover art. I'm not one for looking in mirrors, even now. I tend to see a rendering that, in my case, doesn't often look the way I imagine myself to look, much like the way my voice doesn't sound as I hear it in my head. This was the case for me early on. To be clear, no one really told me I was ugly at least not in a way beyond the dozens or a crack on a school bus. I don't even know if my aversion to mirrors stems from any insecurities about physical attractiveness. Just the alarming nature of being alive and ever-changing. A thing I think about all of the time is the gratitude I have for the very specific era of music packaging I grew up with, the imagery. In the time before CDs, The cassette cover art was small, condensed, hard to appreciate in its full form, but a pal of mine had gotten his hands on a promotional poster of the Scores album cover. The image is iconic, a black backdrop with just the faces of the three members of the group arranged in a pyramid, clef on the left, facing the left, eyes closed, pras on the right, angled to the right, eyes hidden behind sunglasses. And, at the top, the only member with her eyes visible, looking just off stage right, Lauren Hill. In the top left corner, in a yellow typeface reminiscent of The Godfather, it says Fuji's. In the bottom right-hand corner, the score. The image always reminded me of black exploitation films, of black heroics. It stuck with me since I was 12 years old. It was just such a cool, simple, striking photo. At that age, I was first learning how stories could be told without language, how photos themselves could offer up an entire world without sound. And for the longest time, I wondered about its origins. Who made that image? Hey, Brian, how you doing? How you doing, Anif? 
Good, good. Um, the core team was three people. The first was Brian Freeman. In 96, Brian was an art director working for Sony. That's when he was handed a new account, a sophomore album by a hip-hop group from Jersey, Fuji's. How was your role communicated to you, and what was your role in terms of execution? Uh, my role was to give the client what they want. At Sony in particular, we had like budget tiers, so A, B, and C. And the budgets were everything, most things, very little. And they were in the B category, so we could afford a good photographer, someone reputable. Enter Mark Baptiste. My name is Mark Baptiste. Uh, I'm the photographer for the score that was shot in 1995. We could afford X person for styling. I'm Este Ochoa, and I am a photographer, writer. Uh, in 1996, I had just become a freelance stylist. At the time, Este had a column in Vibe magazine forecasting style trends. And Mark was a photographer who'd eventually go on to photograph just about every Black icon of the last 20 years. Spike Lee, Barack Obama, Misty Copeland, Laverne Cox. Mark, Brian, Este. They all met with the group. Oh, I remember everything like it was yesterday. I know it was 25 years ago. They said, Mark, we want something that feel like an Al Pacino movie, plus, you know, energy. They want it to be cinematic. I do remember they were influenced a lot by cinema. And Lauren had, she requested to sort of emulate um, the spirit of Lauren Bacall. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, she was into old cinema. She wanted to elevate, you know, she wanted to be classic. So this was the idea. Cinematic. A little Al Pacino. They needed to find a way to meld this with the label's requirements. All the label wanted was a simple image that would sell. They wanted to have the artist on the cover, so we had to find a way to put them on the cover and give them the context that they were looking to be in. Back then, we were completely different. There's no mood board, let's see what you're going to do, none of that shit. Just go, and every shot got the potential to be an album cover. The day of the shoot was supposed to start at 9 a.m. The group showed up at 11. It was broken up into two parts. First, they'd be in a studio. Then, they'd head out into the city. All the label care at that time is, do we have publicity images, all three of them together? That's all they care about. That shit is boring. Get that out of the way so I could do my images. Let's go to the concrete jungle. I think Marquette did his scouting, and uh, we settled on... a. Uh, Williamsburg, which uh, I don't know if you know what it looks like in Williamsburg, Brooklyn now. Yeah, it's a different thing. Yeah, It's an entirely different beast. Oh, it was desolate, industrial. At the time, Williamsburg was no man's land. And it was but as cold that day. I remember that too. It was like during around that time, like end of January, early February, we shot this. And it wasn't digital. It was all analog. So you're talking over 500 roll of film. 500 rolls? Yes, sir. I don't play. (laughs) (laughs) When I think about the score's album cover now, I think about Lauren's eyes and how they strike this perfect balance between appearing concerned and menacing. 
Her eyes are the only ones visible on the cover, and she's in the middle, slightly above the other two members, and she looks like she knows something bad is coming. But she also looks like she's ready to face whatever it is. One shot should be able to tell you a story. That's why the score is so magical, because each picture tells you their story. The fact that Lauren wasn't looking straight in the camera, that's that was intentional because I don't want her to come connect directly to the audience. I want her to to look into the abyss so people would wonder what is she looking at. If you open up a jewel case of the score, there's a whole shoot worth of photos. The vibe is gritty and grayscale. This is not a group projecting itself as on top of the world. I asked Mark Baptiste about this. Why was that the vibe? Like, why do you think that was the mood? What do you think they're trying to capture? Because both people was getting a bad rap. Immigrants, Baptiste said. Refugees coming to America's shores. You know, whenever I say both people, I know Cubans take both, Haitians take both, but the Haitians get the shot end of the stick. They get put in jail. So I wanted to, I wanted to tell a story about our boat people. That's why we call it the score. Let's settle the score. I've looked at the score's album art a hundred times, and it always struck me as a reference to The Godfather. But there was this whole other part of the Fuji's identity wrapped up in the name itself. Wyclef, Mark Baptiste, Jerry Wanda, they were from Haiti. Praz's parents were from Haiti. Apatina, if you remember Scarface, they came by boat. The whole idea is to really, to dignify whether you come by boat, whether you walk, whether you take the plane, whether you cross the border. You know, immigration is immigration, you know, it's by choice. You're looking for a better life. And, and I think it's to be celebrated, not degraded. Thinking about that cover image of Lauren, Wyclef, and Praz, there's this memory that comes back to me. A conversation that happened on a road trip I went on with photographer Andre Wagner. He told me this thing about street photography, about how Black people are almost always ready to be photographed. They just needed to see a camera and get some space and opportunity. I laughed at the time, but then I watched him work, and it was true. He'd walk up, smiling, camera in hand, and poses would just unfurl. Even before he asked sometimes, people would cross their arms, lean into a friend and smirk, or squat down in an old school rap pose, or gesture with hands while grinning widely. I think, perhaps, This is something Black folks simply carry with them, ready to go at all times. Este Ochoa again. There was one memory that has stood out in my mind forever. It was a moment when we were in the trailer and they had just gotten dressed for their first setup. And I remember being at the front of the trailer and looking back and they were all standing in front of separate mirrors and they were really, really feeling themselves. I mean, they were just in awe of of themselves. And I just remember at that moment, it was so important to me because it made me realize why I loved what I was doing. Helping these talents realize their potential visually. And it was that moment that they were really, they were really feeling it. And I think that's what I most feel about the Fugees and the score's cover image now. 
a sort of awe at how much a single image could achieve. This was an immense effort. A spotlight shined on people it is maybe easier to ignore. A work of Black heroics. of side A.